0: The reading tonight is from Hosea chapter 5, beginning at verse 8. It's on page 903 of the Church Bibles, Hosea chapter 5, verse 8. Sound the trumpet in Gibeah, the horn in Ramah. Raise the battle cry in Beth-Arvon. Lead on, O Benjamin. Ephraim will be laid waste on the day of reckoning. Among the tribes of Israel, I proclaim what is certain. Judah's leaders are like those who move boundary stones. I will pour out my wrath on them like a flood of water. Ephraim is oppressed, trampled in judgment, intent on pursuing idols. I am like a moth to Ephraim, like rot to the people of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his sores, Then Ephraim turned to Assyria and sent to the great king for help. But he is not able to cure you, not able to heal your sores. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. Then I will go back to my place until they admit their guilt. And they will seek my face in their misery They will earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. My judgments flash like lightning upon you. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice and acknowledgment of God rather than burnt offerings. Like Adam, they have broken the covenant. They were unfaithful to me there. Gilead is a city of wicked men, stained with footprints of blood. As marauders lie in ambush for a man, so do bands of priests. They murder on the road to Shechem, committing shameful crimes. I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There, Ephraim is given to prostitution, and Israel is defiled. Also, for you, Judah, a harvest is appointed. Whenever I would restore the fortunes of my people, whenever I would heal Israel, the sins of Ephraim are exposed, and the crimes of Samaria revealed. They practice deceit, thieves break into houses, bandits rob in the streets. But they do not realize that I remember all their evil deeds. Their sins engulf them. They are always before me. They delight the king with their wickedness, the princes with their lies. They are all adulterers, burning like an oven whose fire the bacon need not stir from the kneading of the dough till it rises. On the day of the festival of our king, the princes become inflamed with wine, and he joins hands with the mockers. Their hearts are like an oven. They approach him with intrigue. Their passion smoulders all night. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are as hot as an oven. They devour their rulers. All their kings fall, and none of them calls on me. Ephraim mixes with the nations. Ephraim is a flat cake, not turned over. Foreigners sap his strength, but he does not realize it. His hair is sprinkled with gray, but he does not notice. Israel's arrogance testifies against him. But despite all this, he does not return to the Lord his God or search for him. Ephraim is like a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt, now turning to Assyria. When they go, I will throw my net over them. I will pull them down like birds of the air. When I hear them flocking together, I will catch them. Woe to them, because they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, because they have rebelled against me. I long to redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry out to me from their hearts, but wail upon their beds. They gather together for grain and new wine, but turn away from me. I train them and strengthen them, but they plot evil against me. They do not turn to the Most High. They are like a faulty bow. Their leaders will fall by the sword because of their insolent words. For this they will be ridiculed in the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Right, let's pray as we begin. Our Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us in your word. You've not left us in the dark. And we know, Father, that this word is a double-edged sword that penetrates our hearts. And so, Father, we pray that as we think on these verses this evening that you, by your Spirit, would do that work in us. Cause us, Father, to despair of our own abilities to save ourselves. But cause us, Father, to fling ourselves on our Saviour. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 2016, uh, the actress Kira Knightley uh, was interviewed and she said this, If only I wasn't an atheist. I could get away with anything. You just ask for forgiveness and then you'll be forgiven. And probably, I'm guessing, you would have heard something very similar at work or amongst friends or maybe even think that here this evening because a lot of people think of the gospel in that kind of way. It's a blank check. That God's kind of there, he's always happy to forgive, all we have to do is ask him and he's happy to sign uh, where he needs to pay. Now actually when you think about that statement, I, I think the problem isn't the forgiveness bit. The more I think about it, there is something right in that statement, isn't it? That God does forgive, he forgives generously, no matter what your background, no matter how big the sin. But actually there's another assumption in that statement which I think is actually not the problem. It assumes that we can turn. It assumes that we can ask if we want to. It, it assumes that we have that inclination and that ability to ask God for forgiveness. See, the problem with that kind of attitude isn't that, um, that God doesn't forgive. See, the problem is that it assumes that we can ask him. It, and it doesn't overstate what God does, it overstates what we can do. Because actually, asking for forgiveness is actually a pretty difficult thing, isn't it? See, if you don't believe me, think to the last time you apologised or knew you had to apologise. How easy did you find it? I mean, even when you know it's the right thing to do in your head, how easy do you do it, find it to, to actually do it? I mean, put your hand up if you find it easy. No, don't. it would be too embarrassing. Uh, see, uh, it is hard, isn't it, to come and ask us for forgiveness. And that presents a real problem when it comes to God. Not because we don't have a God who forgives, but because we struggle so much to turn to him when we need to. And tonight's passage is really about that, and it shows us why it is so difficult for people, including myself in this, to turn and to ask God for what we need Uh, You'll see that that's the theme running through our whole passage. Please do open it up, it's on page 903. Uh, You'll see that running through this passage, there's a lot going on, but running through is this idea of returning or calling on the Lord. So 5 verse 4, this is last week's, we saw that their deeds do not permit them to return to the Lord. Uh, And 6 verse 1, he says, come, let us return to the Lord. And over the page 7 verse 7, he says, all of them are hot as an oven, all their kings fall, and none of them calls on me, returns to me. Uh, and 7 verse 10, Israel's arrogant testifies against him that despite all this, he does not return to the Lord. So right running through all these chapters is this idea of turning back, of calling, of returning to the Lord. But the thing is, we see throughout these chapters, is that the people can't do it. No matter how good God is to them, no matter how broken they are, they just don't want to turn. And you've seen that idea, haven't we, um, as we've looked through Hosea already. Remember, right at the beginning, Hosea's to marry a prostitute called Goma. Uh, she goes off with other men, and then Hosea's told to go and win her back. But he has to win her back. It's not that Goma turns around and asks for forgiveness. Hosea goes and redeems her. And we saw this back in chapter 4. Uh, we saw that they had no knowledge of God, no relationship with God. And just look at how the people described in 4 verse 16. The Israelites... I mean, imagine this for a character reference. The Israelites are stubborn, like a stubborn heifer. I mean, if you've got a dog, you get this kind of picture, don't you? You know dogs, when they don't want to go where you want them to go, they will put all their weight down. And so you tug the lead, and they're not going anywhere, no matter how hard you try Well, if they're a small dog, you can pull them along. But uh, if they're a big dog, they're not going anywhere. Well, imagine doing that with a cow. I mean, it's pretty impossible. And yet God says, that is what my people are like they're stubborn. They cannot change. They cannot turn. And actually, that is a problem that doesn't just stop with Israel. It's a problem that plagues humanity throughout the ages. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, it's a problem that we struggle with, even as Christians. And so this passage tonight really gets into why we find it so difficult to turn and what makes it possible to turn. See, first of all, uh, under our first point on the the handout, you'll see the first thing Hosea actually shows us is why we need to turn at all, Uh, and this picks up on verses 8 to 15. Now, it's worth having in mind a bit of context here. Um, There's a lot kind of going on in the background, and you can read it in uh, 2 Kings chapter 15. But basically, this is kind of um, a massive period of unrest for all the nations. This is kind of Brexit on steroids. This is pretty big. And whenever you're coming to one of these prophets, it's worth asking the question, what's going on historically here? Um, It's worth asking three questions. First of all, is it north or south? So is it the southern kingdom, Judah? Is it the northern kingdom, Israel? Uh, Is it pre-exile, this is the second question, pre-exile or post-exile? So is it before they go off or uh, after they've come back? And secondly, is it Assyria or Babylon? Assyria kind of deals with the north, Babylon with the south, and uh, they happen at slightly different times. Now, Hosea is speaking to both kingdoms, um, and he's speaking before the exile, before Assyria. Now, don't worry if that kind of has gone over your head a bit, but the, the, the thing is to see that there's a storm brewing. Assyria is on the rise. Uh, here's a, a map of Assyria. Um, the Syria is all this green area. They, they start off here, but they basically have a massive uh, expansion across uh, the ancient world. Uh, And you'll see right down to where Israel is. Uh, They start by um, kind of bullying some of the nations. uh, And then uh, Syria down here and Israel pay them off. Uh, But that doesn't kind of work for too long because some of the citizens get a bit fed up. And so they uh, assassinate the kings uh, and then say, we're not going to pay you, Assyria. But Assyria then comes in, you can see this arrow here, smashes up Syria, defeats it, and then basically strips back all the northern tribes of Israel. Uh, until there's hardly anything left. Now, while this is all going on, um, Judah uh, see an opportunity for a bit of a land grab. There's Judah there. Uh, And so they, actually, while Israel's off fighting Assyria in the north, they think, oh, hang on a minute, we can uh, pop in and get some of the land uh, above us. And so they do uh, a bit of a land grab at the same time. Now, uh, don't worry if that kind of doesn't make sense uh, uh, to you, but uh, you can see, can't you, that there's all these kind of alliances Uh, that are going on, all these kind of battles, all these kind of uh, quests for land. But the thing is, these all take place without any regard for the Lord. And look at God's response in chapter five, verse nine. Ephraim, that's another title for Israel, will be laid waste on the day of reckoning. Among the tribes of Israel, I proclaim what is certain. Judah's leaders are like those who move boundary stones. I will pour out my wrath on them like a flood of water. See, God says, whatever is left of you, Israel, is going to be wiped away. And Judah, your land grab, where well, he describes it like a neighbourly dispute, where a neighbour might shift the hedge slightly to take over some of the neighbor's territory. See, God says, I see what you've done, and I will judge And in fact, uh, the words used here are kind of covenant words. You you know that Israel was in a covenant with God, a kind of formal agreement, uh, a bit like a mortgage. Uh, You know when you enter into a mortgage, you uh, have all sorts of terms and conditions, don't you? You say, I'm going to keep up repayments on my house, uh, and if I don't, I jeopardize my house. I might get my house repossessed. Uh, And it's a bit like that for Moses. He says, you should keep this covenant, otherwise the land you're being given, you're in danger of losing In fact, uh, Moses specifically talks about moving poundry stones, uh, and he says whoever does that will be cursed. And so the people forget this. They, They press ahead with all these alliances, they do the land grabs, they make the payments to Assyria, but they forget that they're in covenant with the Lord. They forget that they're in the Lord's land. See, the right response would have been to turn and to ask the Lord for help. But look where they went instead in verse 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his sores, then Ephraim turned to Assyria and sent to the great king for help. But he is not able to cure you, not able to heal your sores. Uh, as a church minister, we, um, we don't get houses, so we tend to buy houses elsewhere. I own a house in Kent. And uh, a few months ago, just as we, Claire was going into labour actually, uh, the house next door caught light and uh, basically there was a huge house fire and it scorched the back of our house and done some really significant damage. Uh, just imagine though that the tenant never told me and I found out a few months later. They said, oh yeah, by the way, the back of your house is burnt to a crisp. I'd be pretty frustrated, wouldn't I? I'd be calling into question whether it's the tenant I want. But imagine they didn't tell me, and they didn't tell me for several months, and there was a kind of all those storms have hit, and there's been significant damage, and so the property has been flooded. Well, I'd be looking at kind of getting the tenant out at that point. That'd be unfair not to tell me. But not only imagine that. Imagine they then employed a cowboy builder and managed to charge it to my account, and the cowboy builder did such a bad job. Actually, I feel like I've got one of those at the moment. That the house. Hope is not listening. Uh, Men of the houses fell fell down, and uh, the the property was completely trashed. I mean, it would be outrageous, wouldn't it? But that's what God's people have done. See, they're in his land. They're tenants under a good God, in a good land, and they've treated his land with contempt. They've got in a mess, and yet they still don't turn to him. And that's why we see that God's response is as fierce as it is. Verse 14 says, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, a great lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. See, we all love lions, don't we? My kids love playing with them. They're pretty majestic. They're good fun. But this is not a good image of a lion. This is a lion on the hunt, sinking its teeth into the prey, carrying it off to its lair. And God says, that is what I'm going to do With the people in this land. And maybe you think to yourself, well that sounds a bit strong. I mean, surely God is not like that. He's not a lion like that. But remember where we've been in Hosea. Remember right at the beginning, that picture of what it meant to break the covenant. It was like cheating on a husband. And it was not only like being cheated, it was like being cheated repeatedly. And God says that if you do that, there are consequences. See, one of the big reasons I think that we so struggle as a culture to think that we need to turn or think we've got anything to, to speak to the Lord about is because we don't think God really cares. We don't think God really uh, cares when we uh, live in his world and don't recognize him for who he is. Like lots of us imagine him as a kind of nice grandad who we can kind of sweet talk when we mess up. But actually, God shows he's a self-respecting uh, being if he's cheated on. He will come in judgment. But moving on to our second point, it's not that God just says this to scare the people. Uh, notice that he actually wants to restore them. Verse 15 says, Then I will go back to my place until they admit their guilt, and they will seek my face, and in their misery will earnestly seek me. See, God isn't removing the land here just to be spiteful, or just to say, look, I'm having back what's mine. He's wanting to bring them back to himself. Uh, It's like if you're a a parent, you often put your children in time out. And you do that to make them realize they've lost something. That's the idea, anyway. You kind of say, right, go on the steps. You you take them out of the situation. They realize what they've lost. And the idea is that then they come back and they say, sorry. And they they give you a hug and everything will be okay. Or at least that's the theory, anyway. See, God says, He could have said, Exile's it. I'm done with you all together. But he says, I want to bring you back. Except there's a big, big problem here. They cannot turn. So you have a look at chapter 6, verse 4. We come back to the verses in between. But here's what God says of his people What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. He picks up, he picks up on those pictures of clouds, you know, on a summer's morning. It's great, isn't it, when you just wake up on a summer's morning and there's these clouds on the, uh, on the ground. And you'll know as soon as the sun comes up, they get scorched and they disappear completely. Or you know how um, if you go out into your garden to uh, hang your washing out in July or something? You don't hang your washing out anymore, I know. But um, you know that, that kind of idea and you get your shoes wet and uh, you'll know within 10 minutes the sun comes up and completely scorches all what's on the ground. See, God says, my people's hearts are like that. They cannot turn. They cannot love. Even when I offer them a way back, they don't want to come. And maybe some of us know that feeling ourselves. I know I certainly do. We know God is good. We know he forgives. But then we find out our hearts are very different And perhaps we tell ourselves, oh I've decided to live for God and it's worked for a while and then we find that the wheels fall off and reality strikes. Or we say to ourselves, oh I'm a new person, I've cracked that sin, I've got a new way of doing things. But then we realise our hearts are not as strong as we thought they were. See the people cannot turn on their own. Now, why is that? Well, Hosea gives two reasons. First of all, uh, it's what I call the I'm okay reason. See, look at 7 verse 2. God says, I do not realize that I remember all their evil deeds. Their sins engulf them. They're always before me. See, they do not realize, he says. They forget that God sees. See, God goes on to describe exactly what they've done. Uh, In uh, 7 verses 6 to 7 of chapter 7, Hosea speaks about some events there. We're not not completely sure which one he's speaking about, but basically just before the exile, there was a series of assassinations. So King Jeroboam was assassinated after six months in the job by Shalom. Uh, Shalom was uh, assassinated. He lasted one month. Not great. Uh, He was assassinated by uh, Menahem. Uh, Pekiah, he reigned two years he did pretty well but then he was assassinated by Pekah. now we think our prime ministers don't last that long and uh, we've had three in the last decade but that's nothing is it compared to what happened in israel and it seems that everyone was kind of wrapped up in these plots the priests and the kings and all the kind of um court of the, the royal house and god says in verse 7 all of them are hot as an oven they devour their rulers all their kings fall, and none of them calls on me. Do you see, God says, look, you see your kings fall, you plot all these things, and you think you're okay. But I've seen it. You're like an oven. He's talking there not about our electric ovens that we turn 220 and we wait for it to warm up. He's talking about the baker's oven, which would kind of smolder in the night, and then the baker would come down and kind of uh, rev it up a bit and put some fuel on it, and it would burst into flames. He says the rulers and the priests are like that. They're kind of smoldering away, charming the king, only to get the knife in in the morning. And because they think they're okay, they never see the need to turn. See, none of them calls on me, he says, even when there's every sign to do so. See, it's a stark reminder, isn't it, that the easiest person to deceive is ourself. I don't know about you, but you always tell yourself that you're okay, I think. I remember this was brought home to me when I did a chaplaincy placement in a prison. And uh, as part of the placement, you were mixing with the criminals. It was a prison after all. And uh, even there, it was striking that people thought they were okay. I remember having chats with all sorts of people that did all sorts of bad stuff. And uh, they thought they were okay. They were explaining, obviously they did the crime, but they were more kind of acceptable than others. And I remember just very starkly having this conversation with a sex offender. And he was telling me how he had to go back to court for some extra charges and telling me how unfair it is. And you kind of, you, you can kind of get swayed by it, but then you realize, mate, you're a, you've done the wrong thing. You, you know, you've, you've done something very seriously wrong. And it made me think, how easy is it to justify yourself? Even in prison, there are better prisoners, worse prisoners. And even with myself, I tell myself I'm okay. See, if I let myself be the judge of myself, I'll never reach a guilty verdict. But God says here, I see differently. And by the way, just saying this in passing, this is why we need the word of God constantly in our lives. Because if we trust ourselves, we will think the same. See, the Bible's a mirror. It shows us what we're really like. And because of that, we need it to show us our need for the cross, But the second reason here I think we find it difficult to turn is is perhaps a bit more subtle, a bit more deceptive, and it's not that people don't want to turn, but they turn to the wrong thing. See, in 7 verse 8, um, Hosea goes back to the political alliances he mentions in chapter 5. Look at verse 8. Ephraim, that's Israel, mixes with the nations. Ephraim is a flat cake, not turned over. Now, I love the fact that this flat cake has come up this week, because what he's talking about there is a pancake. And uh, uh, just by way of godly coincidence, I made a hash of one of the pancakes. So I got distracted, and uh, one side was completely scorched. Uh, but the top looked fine. And it's very tempting. I hadn't got much pancake mix just to serve that up to one of the kids and uh, just say, "Yeah, it looks fine. What's wrong with it? But obviously, as soon as they bite into it, they're going to get a mouthful of ash, And God says that that is what my people are like. They're burnt on one side. They look fine, but they don't realize. Verse 9 Foreigners sap his strength, but he does not realize it. His hair is sprinkled with grey, but he does not notice. Uh, My hair is starting to be sprinkled with grey, but thankfully people have pointed that out to me. But this image here is that they've not noticed. They're, They're like the person who's got old and they've not realized it. They're wearing a tracksuit like a 15 year old they're riding a scooter they're climbing walls but they've got the body of an 80 year old see they don't realize that these alliances they've entered in these ways of sorting themselves out are broken from the outset so he describes them verse 11 like a dove easily deceived and senseless now call into egypt now turn into assyria now apparently um i don't know much about doves but doves haven't got the highest iq See, a dove, apparently when it sees food, if you're ever going to try and catch a bird, this is the one to go for. Because when it sees food, it just locks in on the food. I'm pretty like this myself. And so you can creep up on it with a net or something where other birds would flutter off. A dove will just uh, go for the food and so you can catch it. And he says, my people are like that. Assyria comes out with these great promises never to attack them and my people believe them. They even pay them. So you notice the subtlety of this, isn't it? It's not that people won't turn, although they won't. It's that they, won't, they turn to the wrong things. They don't turn to the Lord. They turn to their idols. And the, the irony is they had God there as their husband. Now remember that picture. God was a perfectly loving husband to his people. He could protect them. He promised to protect them. And yet, verse 13, we read, I long to redeem them but they speak lies against me. They do not cry out to me from their hearts, but wail upon their beds. They gather together for grain and new wine, but turn away from me. See, it's incredible, isn't it? They, They see the problem. It's causing them to cry, and yet they won't turn to their God. They stay on their beds, wailing night and day, rather than turn to the one who can fix it. And we know what that's like, don't we? So often we can find ourselves in those patterns ourselves. We, we recognise there's a problem quite often, that our lives aren't as they should be, but rather than our instinct being to turn to the Lord, we turn to other things. We think to ourselves, I'll be okay once I get my career back on track. I'll be okay once I've got those exam results, then I'll be complete. Once I've got that relationship, then uh, there'll be no problems. Once I Uh, exercise, whatever it is, then I'll be okay. I wonder what it is for you. I I often ask myself what is it I think will complete me when I feel feel like everything's on top of me and for me it's always a holiday. I always think it'll be okay Rob once you're on the beach then it'll be okay but actually my instinct is not to turn to the Lord see we always turn to uh, lots of us uh, turn to other things rather than the one who helps and and. This reminds us that God uh, is the only one who can fix these problems. See, the biggest problems like sin and death, Assyria cannot touch. And yet Israel do not realize. They cannot turn. Now what hope, moving on to our third point, is there in all this? Because at the end of this, you're left with a huge predicament, aren't you? You're left on the one hand with a God who forgives, who is good, is a good husband, and yet are people who just don't believe it, who do not want to turn, who are stubborn like a heifer. But we get a glimmer of hope, and it's in chapter 6 uh, in verse 1. See, verses 1 to 3, uh, uh, they don't kind of fit in one sense. They, they, they read a bit differently to everything around it. Have a look at, uh, you'll see what I mean if, uh, if I read it again. Uh, it, it, they say this, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces but He will heal us. He has injured us, but He will bind up our wounds. After two days He will revive us. On the third day He will restore us, that we may live in His presence. Now, I don't know about you, but they just—those verses don't really seem to fit, do they? Uh, and so, some people say that the people here are just kind of saying these uh, verses with their kind of fingers behind their back. They don't really mean it, or it's a bit of a cynical response. But actually, um, as you read it, you think actually this is a pretty model response. And there's no kind of obvious sign of it being cynical. So many others have argued, and I think I agree with them, that Hosea is kind of setting out here the pattern of what it means to turn. What it means to turn back to the Lord, and what it would then mean if we did turn back to the Lord. This is a kind of best case scenario. But whatever way we look at it, the people at this point... Are nowhere near this. Their hearts are too stubborn. They cannot change. They cannot turn. It's like offering a child a day out in a theme park, but they refuse to go because they do not want to put their shoes on. And so, what hope is there at the end of all this? This glimmer of hope kind of just sits there, lost in a sea of despair. Well, you have to press the story, follow the story through uh, to the New Testament. Uh, Because sadly, after Hosea's ministry, Israel rather, did go into exile and Judah followed a century later, and that true people of God got smaller and smaller and smaller. And it's like as you go through the rest of uh, the Old Testament, it whittles down to just one true Israelite. And this true Israelite, who we meet in the New Testament, did turn to his father, did call on his God. Not because he needed his sins forgiven, not because he had failed him, but because he loved him, because he wanted to know him. See, all through Jesus' ministry, he prayed to his Father, not out of duress, but because it was his pleasure. Even before the cross, praying, Father, your will be done. And even as he died, he turned up to the Father, praying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. See Jesus, the true Israelite, leaned on the Lord in a way you and me could never do, and so he experienced the restoration God promises here. I've included those verses, uh, that verse from one Corinthians fifteen, on your handout. Paul, the apostle, says this: He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Now, I've read that several times, but actually, it's interesting, Paul never, we never quite know where he means when he says according to the Scriptures, because there's not an obvious place that says that Jesus would be raised on the third day. Uh, I know you're going to think of Jonah, but come and speak to me about that afterwards. Uh, Here's, um, so so where's Paul getting this from, this idea that he's going to be raised on the third day? Well, actually, lots of people argue it's from Hosea 6, verse 2. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. In fact, in verse two, the words there in the original are give life and raise us up. Now, obviously, Hosea is speaking about the nation in the first sense, but actually what he said was never true of the nation. And it only becomes true when we go forward to the true Israelite, the one who was torn was injured, but now gives, has given life and has been raised. And so because of Jesus, this prayer that Hosea says is something we can say. But we don't say it quite as Hosea says it. We say that God has torn him, God has injured him to give us life, to raise us so that we may live in his presence. See, this isn't a chapter that tells us just to kind of muster up the strength and try hard to turn back to God or or, or say, look at the Israelites, they got it all wrong, but we're much better and we can turn. It's a chapter who points us to the one who can bring that about. It's because Jesus perfectly leaned on his father and because by his spirit he changes our hearts now to call on that same father that we can do this says in Galatians and because you are sons God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts crying Abba Father See, so if you're here this evening and um, perhaps you're not sure whether you're a Christian perhaps you wouldn't call yourself a Christian can you see here God offers you the opportunity to be restored to life to experience life in all its fullness but to get there it does mean dying into something it's, to get there is about admitting you cannot turn on your own. That sense that you're okay, that sense that other things can save you, you have to say, I cannot do it. But if we do, verse 2 is true of us, that we may live in his presence, that he may revive you, that he may restore you. And for us that are Christians, we need to constantly keep coming back to this and remind ourselves that we've not just been saved from our sin, but we've been saved from our inability to save ourselves, if that makes sense. We need to remember that God has done this to change our stubborn hearts and cause us to cry our Abba Father to Him. Let's pray. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Our Father, we praise you for the way the Lord Jesus has shown the reality of these verses. We thank you, Father, that these, prophet, uh, these words that Hosea spoke are true in him. And so, Father, we come to you not resting on our own abilities, our own insights but on your mercies and ask, Father, you would cause us to be constantly grateful for the work you've done through your Son, by your Spirit, to change our stubborn hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.